Welcome to the SSPX Podcast, delivering sermons, lectures, and the spoken word from across the English-speaking world. On this week's episode of Questions with Father, we'll be asking Father Paul Robinson about the motives behind the betrayal of our Lord by Judas. Why is it that Judas would betray a friend, not to mention our divine Savior, for just some pieces of silver? But first, we're going to talk about the 1955 Holy Week Liturgy. Why did it change? And why is it that the Society of St. Pius X uses the 1962 Holy Week Liturgy? This will bring up some discussion about the various liturgies and and why the liturgy changes at all. If you would like to find out more about the 1962 liturgy, you can go to angelispress.org. As it happens just this week, they're now in their eighth printing of the 1962 Missal. You can find that for sale online and also learn more about the liturgy and what this missile has. And if you would like some more information about the SSPX podcast, how you can submit your own questions, or how you can listen to some previous episodes, or how you can subscribe so that you never miss an episode, please visit sspxpodcast.com. While you're there, you'll find links to donate. Of course, we don't charge anything for listening to this podcast. It is free, but it takes some resources. So please feel free to donate. If you can, set up a monthly recurring donation, even for just a few dollars. It will help us out immensely as we reach out to as many people as possible about the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. With that advertisement out of the way, let's turn to Father Robinson on this week's episode of Questions with Father on the SSPX Podcast. The SSPX Podcast, back for another edition of Questions with Father with Father Paul Robinson. Hello, Father. How are things going? Going well, Andrew. Very Glad to be back. Very good. The last time we spoke a couple weeks ago, uh, the, the students, the seminarians were taking exams. How, how did everyone do? Um, they they survived. I think the, the vast majority have, have survived. <laughs> uh, they're, they're definitely still alive, so there's no there was no fatalities. Um, the in fact uh, tomorrow is the the last day of the exams, and then we have a three day break after that. So I think they're they're very much looking forward to to their break. Um, so they have, uh, as they say, three days off, and they get to um, yeah just. Um, perhaps rest a bit or uh, head to town and, and see some of the sites in, in Goulburn, <laughs> um, but uh, recover, uh, a period of recovery before the second semester starts. Oh, that's good. You are, you are a kind and benevolent professor then, maybe. Well, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to um, yes, perjure myself on, on uh, an SSPS <laughs> podcast, but I, I definitely try to, to be as accommodating as possible <laughs> to my students. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I guess we'll head right into the questions this week, Father. And uh, of course, if you have a question for Father that you'd like answered, something that has always kind of bounced around your brain about the faith or the traditions of the church, feel free to send it in to sspxpodcast.com or send it in on our Facebook page. But our first question this week, Father, is about the Holy Week liturgy. We're fairly far away from it, but uh, there were some changes uh, in the 20th century to the Holy Week liturgy. uh, And there were, I guess, reforms in 1955 and 1962. You're going to have to correct me if I'm getting that wrong. But if I'm not mistaken, the the SSPX uh, uses the Missal of 1962. So this questioner said, would the priests of the Society of St. Pius X ever consider celebrating the Holy Week liturgy as it was before the 1955 reforms? I believe, he says, that the rites of the pre-55 Holy Week liturgy contain a richness proper to the penitential spirit that families who remain faithful to tradition should be able to benefit from. So maybe before we answer that question, Father, could you give the listeners and myself a little bit of background as to what these changes are and, and you set our dates right? Uh, 
Sure, Andrew. Um, uh, as the the questioner indicates, in 1955, Pope Pius XII reform the Holy Week a ceremony. So this just concerns the ceremonies for the sacred tree room, um, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. So the reforms were, were brought in. Um, this is sort of a, a late pre-Vatican II development of what was called uh, the liturgical movement. So um, you're probably aware that in the 1800s, the late 1800s, uh, there was uh, a certain liturgical revival in the Latin Rite where people were becoming more aware of the beauty of their own rite. And there was a certain fostering of things like um, the Gregorian chant, the, the chanting of the Kyrie and the Gloria and so on by, by the faithful uh, and uh, things like the dialogue mass, things like bringing a missile to mass, using a missile. Um, so all these were good things. Uh, and St. Pius X himself, in fact, was was uh, provided a great impetus to this liturgical movement in, in the right way. However, uh, the liturgical movement sort of started to go wonky a bit um, before the council. And um, we know that after the council, uh, the, all the wheels fell off and, and everything fell apart, when, especially when people like uh, Archbishop Annibale Bernini uh, was entrusted by Paul VI with the work of uh, recovating the mass. The reforms of Holy Week in 1955 were in the line of, of this ongoing greater attempt to, to appreciate the liturgy. So the reforms were done by, by Pius XII. They were never seen by the archbishop as, as being against the faith, and they became part of the missile, which is now the 1962 missile. Um, the 1962 missile incorporates as well some changes of, of John XXIII, such as the addition of, of St. Joseph to the canon. So because of of the fact that, that we use the 1962 missile by default, we also use the Holy Week ceremonies of 1955. So you, you may have just answered the, the question in, in whole, but uh, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into that. We, we were talking about this, uh, shoot, almost a year ago, I think, Father, uh, it was Questions with Father number 10, that that podcast, if, if anyone's interested in going back and listening to it. But we talked about that in terms of, you know, popes throughout history have changed the mass, that the mass has not been, or at least the liturgy, uh, has not been this static thing uh, all throughout the, the two millennia of history. So there, there have been changes. Uh, I think tr us traditional Catholics, we traditional Catholics are more attuned to being a little bit concerned when we hear changes because we're used to the changes of Vatican II and all of those. But change of the liturgy is not in and of itself a bad thing. So that's that's what you're saying happened uh, with the, the 1955 uh, changes that, that Pope Pius XII did. Uh, these were changes that were before many of the radical changes of Vatican II and, and even the 1962 Missal has some changes that were not as drastic as, as what we you know, dislike and, and have such a problem with in the Society of St. Pius X. Yes, that's exactly right. So the, there have always been little changes in the liturgy throughout the history of the church. It's not wrong of itself to change the liturgy. Uh, for instance, sometimes there's, there's um, a certain 
deeper awareness of the mysteries of the faith, uh, especially in the Middle Ages, we think of their greater understanding of the, of the Eucharist than, than in times past. And this was the beginning of, of the great Eucharistic devotion that we have today with the Feast of Corpus Christi, with processions of the Blessed Sacrament, with benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, these these sorts of things. But the, the, the main problem that we have with the changes of the Novus Ordo, in fact, there's, I, I would say there's two problems. Uh, one problem is that the, the whole spirit of the changes was, let's just cook up an entirely new liturgy. So they were not paying attention at all to the organic development of the liturgy over the period of 2000 years. They just created something from scratch. Now that's something that's never been done. Let's just invent a liturgy. Um, and it's, it's definitely not the spirit of the church. The church is by nature traditional. She always respects her tradition and she does things in line with her tradition. You can't just ignore your whole tradition and, and invent a liturgy. That just is, is not the right spirit. But secondly, um, the, the fact that the liturgy that they crafted was purposely directed to hide major aspects of the faith and the, the very essence of the Mass itself, which is the sacrificial nature of the Mass. So that is the, the, main, the main objections that we have to the new Mass, whereas we would not have those same objections with regards to, for instance, the changes uh, that were introduced in, in Holy Week to the Holy Week liturgy in 1955, um, because there, there was as a continuity between the, the liturgy that existed before for the Triduum and the, the liturgy that existed afterwards. It wasn't just a, a sort of complete chucking out of the of the old Holy Week and an inventing of an entirely new liturgy. It was just a, a changing of some aspects of, of that previous Holy Week liturgy. So it, it, when we're talking about these these changes, so there was the 1955 Missal, there's the 1962 Missal, which is what most traditional Catholics are, are, are used to, I believe. That's what the Society of St. Pius X uses. Uh, so if you have the Angelus Press Missal or whatever, that's a 1962 Missal. Then there was, what, a, a 1969 or 1970? And then another edition, and then I think there was one in 2000 or 2002. So there have been more changes since then. But the 1962 missile, that is the one that Archbishop Lefebvre identified as, as being kind of the last one that still had the the, the richness and the, the traditions of the church uh, that was, I guess, consistent. That's correct. You know, um, I, I think this is a, a very important aspect of this question about the pre-52 Holy Week, um, you know, the, the questioner is saying that it might be spiritually richer. Um, now, I'm, I'm not in a position to, to speak to that. And in fact, I've, I've never actually attended the, 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 the 1955 Holy Week ceremonies. Um, it could be that, that in some aspects it is more spiritually enriching. Um, I, I definitely don't rule that out. But the, the thing is, um, this Holy Week liturgy came from the church. Uh, the archbishop, um, when he was trying to figure out what to do after the changes, um, he understood that he had to respect the authority of the church. So this was not just a question of, of choosing the things that, that he preferred. Uh, let's look at all the liturgies and let's, let's choose the one that I like the best. Um, but it was a question of, I need to maintain my faith. Um, if if uh, the Pope has asked me to say a mass which weakens my faith and which does not represent the faith, um, then I would, would be not, not just lawfully disobeying him by, by refusing to do that, but even I would have a duty before God to, to refuse to do so. So the 
principle of the archbishop was, um, I have to, to follow lawful authority unless that authority is asking me to do something against the faith. And so when he was trying to figure out what to do with the liturgy, I, I believe he even tried, uh, he, he was saying for a while an, an intermediate mass, uh, a 1965 missile, um, and, and what he found with both the new mass and, and the 1965 missiles is it, it just weakened the faith and it didn't properly sort of represent the, the faith. Um, and we know from experience after, after 50 years of the new mass that that is exactly what happens when people regularly assist at the new mass or priests regularly um, offer the new mass is that their their faith uh, it starts to evaporate. There's not a proper respect for the Eucharist. There's not a proper um, awareness of, of the fact that the mass is a sacrifice, that, that is all hidden. There's all these ecumenical overtones that, that are accommodations to, to the Protestants so that they will be um, pleased with the new mass. It was for these reasons that the archbishop took a stand in conscience um, against the new mass and, and chose to say the 1962 missile. And he felt that he could not sort of go back further in time because that same reason would not hold. So for for him to go back to the 1955 Holy Week um, would would be him trumping the authority of, of Pius XII. It would be him choosing the, the pre-52 Holy Week on the basis of devotion and not on basis of questions of faith. So um, he, you know, he, that just wasn't his his spirit. And, and that kind of answers uh, w w the next question I was going to ask as a follow up was, you know, let's say, F Father, you decided that uh, you wanted to say the, you know, perform the liturgy as, as according to the 1955 uh, method, according to the 1955 missile, um, you, you would not be allowed to do that. That would be something that is uh, that would be wrong for you to do. Is that right? That, that's correct. I mean, um, I, if, if I if I said to myself, I want to say the Pius X breviary, or I want to say the the pre 1955 um, missal, or, or I want to go back even even before to some older liturgical rules that existed before. You know, that's that's me as an individual priest, just making up my my own uh, liturgical choices, and so it's, it's sort of you know in the Latin phrase ad libitum. I would I would be doing things ad libitum, uh, just according to to my own will. Um, and we just don't have the the authorization to do that. It's uh, everything has to come to through the church. So if there was a situation where. I don't know. Um, our our superiors were, were thinking, oh well, you know, it might be might be useful to have the the 1955 Holy Week ceremonies in some of our chapels. Well, I, I think what they would do is they would they would probably ask permission from from Rome. Um, and and I think some of the Ecclesia Dei uh, institutions, in fact, have have done that and have received um, some some permission to to celebrate the uh, pre-1955 Holy Week ceremonies. The Ecclesia Day Commission, I think, granted that under under some conditions to, to certain sort of traditionalist uh, priestly fraternities. So, I mean, we would, would have to, that same permission would have to be, be given to, to us for us to do that. Um, and this, this isn't just a question of obedience to, to lawful authority, but it was, is also was a controversial situation that existed 
in uh, the United States District in, in the, the famous sort of uh, crisis of 1982 and 1983, where we had some, some society priests who were state of a contest, and they were, they were arguing that the 1962 missile was, was bad because it was promulgated by Pope John XXIII. You say, oh, well, John XXIII was a modernist. He, he started the council. Um, he's the one that's behind this missile. Uh, perhaps he was a Freemason, you know? Right, <laughs> And right. so for us to, to celebrate this mass would, would be wrong. Um, and, and the archbishop said, well, look, um, you, you can't give that kind of, of reason. Um, it has to be a reason connected with the faith. If there's something in the mass itself that uh, is damaging to our faith, well, then we, we are bound in conscience to disobey. We, we have a right to, to disobey that. But if if that's not the case, I mean, even if, if John the 23rd was, was a Freemason, who, who cares? If he lawfully promulgated it, um, then and it's, it's, it doesn't compromise our faith, and then we have a duty to, to celebrate Mass with, with that missile. So he stuck to his principles on, on that question. We can't just choose whatever we want on the basis of, of devotion or on the basis that we don't like a pope, for instance. It can only be because there are, our faith itself is being compromised. And, and to riff on that, I mean, Archbishop Lefebvre, he, he chose the 1962 missile for that reason specifically so that it wouldn't be a danger to, to the faith and, and, and weakening the faith. But uh, happily in, in 2007, there was the there was the motu proprio from Pope Benedict the, the 16th Samorum Pontificum that, that gave permission to use the 1962 missile. Any, any priest who wished to use the 1962 missile could freely. So, so uh, you know, priests who do use the 1962 missile are doing so licitly or, or legally, I guess, um, unlike if a priest just decided to use the 1955 missile. That permission has not been given, but the permission has been given for the 1962 missile to any priest in the Catholic Church around the world. Yes, and, and um as as we discussed in that in that podcast that you mentioned, I thank you for for remembering that. That we, I mean, we we've had so many podcasts now, Andrew. I mean, we can we can sort of yeah <laughs> now reference our, our past work. Yeah, this, this is great. this is number twenty one. Uh, uh, there we go. So so in podcast ten, we we were talking about the fact that one of the arguments that we were making before 2007 is that um, quo primum was never abrogated, that that the permission by given by St. Pius V to celebrate the, the traditional mass um, was never taken away. And so there was still the right to, to celebrate that. And, and Benedict XVI confirmed that in 2007, effectively saying that what we had been doing for 40 years was legitimate and lawful, even though we had been told by so many people that, that it was unlawful. But there's another point that I would like to make in this in this discussion, and and that is the importance of the decision that, that Archbishop Lefebvre made now in retrospect, because, because he was the one who established this international priestly fraternity, because he was the one that was holding on true tradition, and because so many of these other traditionalist groups have come from the society or have been influenced uh, by the society in some way, um, it, that's the reason why the 1962 missile exists at this moment and has been celebrated uh, so many places throughout the world, not just in Society of St. Pius X, but many other places. So when, when people go to a traditional mass today, they go to a 1962 missile mass, uh, right. by and large. And the, the reason for that is because of Archbishop Lefebvre. So, so that's really um, a major aspect of his legacy, we may say, to the world um, in, in 
Now, even in our 21st century situation here in 2019, um, the fact that we find the 1962 Middle being celebrated all around the world is because of Archbishop Lefebvre and that decision that he made. Almost prophetic, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it shows his vision of, of the preservation of the tradition of the church and his consciousness of, of, of that, that that was what he was doing was, was not an imagination. It, it was not, it wasn't a, a dream. He wasn't making this up, but he understood that this was the role that he was playing. And now 50, 50 or 60 years later, we, we see, no, in fact, that was what he was doing. Very interesting. Well, thanks for clarifying that, Father. It's a complicated, sometimes almost legalistic world, uh, but but it is. You know, the the word licity uh, that's that's more used in in church conversations, ecclesiastical conversations. But that that's part of it. There's there is a ruler that is, uh, and and we must follow the authority whenever we can. So thanks for clarifying that. We've talked a lot about this. We we can obviously talk many more hours just on this topic, but I'd like to move on to at least one more question if I could this week, Father. And similar to a couple other questions we've had in, in the last couple podcasts, people trying to understand uh, motivations or reasons behind um, some divinely inspired events or, or divine events. Uh, this one also comes from the time when our Lord was, was here on earth. And the questioner asked, has anyone ever heard a convincing reason for why Judas would have betrayed Jesus? We know Judas received some silver coins for betraying Jesus, but after following him for so long, it seems odd to betray him for some pocket change. Was Judas just really in trouble financially? Was he scared of the Jewish officials becoming more aggressive? Or was he just a false follower from the very beginning? So can we get inside the, the mind of Judas, really? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I like these questions, Andrew, in the sense that um, it's, it's very good for us to reflect upon scripture, yeah. um, which we know is divinely inspired. And to, let's just say this reflection upon scripture, uh, upon the mysteries of the rosary does help us deepen our faith. So it's it um, can be very useful to reflect upon these things and to find those theological reasons to to explain in a reasonable way what, what we find in the Gospels. I think that was perhaps what we discussed in podcast 19. I'm, I'm yep. not sure. Uh, exactly. <laughs> you know, the, the, the question of Judas mo- Judas's motives is, is a question that has always occupied the minds of, of Catholics in, in reading Scripture. And I, I really don't think we'll ever completely solve the mystery. Um, there have been many opinions floated in the history of the church. And there, there's three that, that I want to provide, but um, the bottom line is we don't know for sure. Um, we do know that he was under the influence of the devil. Scripture is very clear about that. Um, St. John says, you know, and Satan entered into him, he departed and it was night. You know, it's just very ominous uh, words on the part of, of St. John. So regardless of his motivations, it's clear that he was was not he was under an influence that was not entirely his own. Okay. but the the three um, possible explanations that have been proposed, the first one is the simplest and the most direct, and that is, well, he was a thief. Um, you know, the, again, the Gospel of St. John told, it tells us that he was the one who was the accountant for the band of apostles, and, uh, and he held the purse, and he was embezzling. He was holding back some of, of the donations for himself. He was habitually stealing, and we know that he must have been a great lover of money. 
Um, he must have been avaricious. He must have been greedy mm-hmm. for money. And um, we, we know how sin works. Whenever you have this occupation with some material thing, that material thing becomes um, uh, an all-consuming thing for you. Um, and your passions are wholly occupied with acquiring, for instance, money and collecting money. And to the degree that you become addicted to that sort of sin, um, you become less rational, you become more impulsive, um, and you just can't think properly. You, you don't have a balanced views on things, and you tend to act impulsively. So perhaps that's what happened with Judas. He said, oh, well, there's this opportunity where we're in Jerusalem. I know that the, the chief priest will, will pay me some money for betraying him. I could use some money, so let's do this. Um, I, I'm just going to to go over there and, and betray him and see what I can get for it. That's that's a possibility, but some other people, and in, in our questioner himself, he, he says, well, we know that, that in fact it wasn't a lot of money, so that wouldn't make sense. And right. it's true, the, 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 30, the 30 shekels, the 30 pieces of silver are 30 shekels, um, and that was not a huge sum. We know that, that, that Judas could have gotten more than that in a short time, just embezzling the apostolic purse, as it were. Um, so that's why a lot of people think that there has to have been some other motive. Right. I, I just I that. just Googled it, Father. It says that today's money, it's worth about 600 bucks. So, you know, it's it's something, but it's not it's not worth betraying, uh, you know, even on a natural level. It's not worth betraying a friend over. Yeah. And, and especially if you're already getting money from the purse. Um, so we don't know how much, of course, they, how many donations they were getting, but surely he could have gotten $600 easily um, over, over a short period of time. So some people think it must have been something else. Um, another speculation is just hatred. Perhaps he just hated our Lord, that he, he despised him. We, we know that he certainly had lost faith in our Lord. Um, This is that dramatic scene in John 6 where our Lord announces the doctrine of the Eucharist. And um, he says, will you walk away? And a lot of them do walk away. And except the the apostles, while St. Peter says, to where will we turn? You know, you have the words of life. And our Lord comments that that one of them is a devil. So one of them remains. And and we know that's Judas. St. John mentions it's Judas. Judas doesn't walk away. But he doesn't have the faith. He doesn't believe in our Lord. He doesn't believe that that he is what he claims to be. And so perhaps he just had a certain loathing for our Lord. And so he wanted to see him in in the hands of his enemies. He he wanted to perhaps even even see him dead. Um, But, you know, again, people people object and they say, well, why would why would he so quickly repent? If he hated our Lord, if if it really was out of hatred, wouldn't we expect him to be enjoying the fact that that our Lord had been captured and then view the unraveling events all the way up to the crucifixion of our Lord, which which didn't happen. Uh, uh, Judas was quickly struck with remorse. And as we know, he committed suicide. So it seems hard to to explain the hatred motive from that angle. Right. I mean, maybe maybe there was jealousy and and, and it made the decision a little bit easier. But I I agree with you, Father. It seems a massive flip flop or, or, or change to go from hatred to, you know, bitter remorse. Yeah. And as you say, perhaps the hatred was motivated out of jealousy. Perhaps it was it was contempt. Who knows um, if that was indeed the case? Okay. But there's a third theory about 
about Judas's betrayal. And this theory was not proposed uh, by the fathers. So this is a, more of a, a modern idea, and that is that Judas thought that our Lord was the Messiah in the standard Jewish perspective, that, that he was the Messiah predicted by God was to be a political leader who would restore the Jewish hegemony in their region, who would overthrow the, the Romans, who would assemble an army, sort of be another King Saul or King David, um, and would build them a, an empire. And that for whatever reason, our Lord was just not cooperating with that. And so what Judas wanted to do is, is he wanted to sort of force our Lord's hand. And Judas perhaps noticed all this power that our Lord had. And he suspected that if our Lord were, were put into the hands of his enemies, um, that he would be forced to manifest his power. And that the people would clearly say, see that he was the Messiah. He would have to admit that he was the Messiah. And then um, everything would start moving forward for him to take up his role as, as the king of the Jews. And then Judas saw that his plot failed. He was so saddened that our Lord had been defeated, that his plans were not working out. He saw that he had just caused an absolute mess. And as a result, he, he committed suicide. Wow. Um, so that's a more modern explanation. But again, there's there's always objections. Sure. <laughs> objections to all these perspectives. This is why it makes it so so difficult to, to solve the, the, the question and to know exactly where, where the truth lies without, you know, we can't we can't interrogate Judas and we don't have it, uh, his motive is not told to us in scripture. But but people say, well, you know, why would our Lord condemn Judas so strongly, saying that he had done badly, that it's been better that this man had never been born if Judas had had motives that were in good faith to a certain degree. I mean, if, if this was the, the motive of, of Judas, it would have been very, very imprudent, but it would right. not have been malicious or wicked, you know. But the other motives would have been malicious and wicked if he was a thief or he did it out of hatred. But if he, if he was just trying to accelerate our Lord's glory, uh, well, that, that would not have been a wicked motive, but uh, our Lord seems to imply that, in fact, Judas was a wicked man. And, and I think the questioner is, is doing what is natural for, for any of us when, when something happens that seems uh, unexplainable or just out of the realm of possibility. We, we struggle to try and make sense of it. You know, we, 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 we would put ourselves in, 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 you know, Judas's shoes as, as a disciple and seeing our Lord and following him and, and say, how, how could someone do that? Uh, so it's an interesting question and it is something interesting to meditate on and think on. But at the end of the day, it's, we're maybe trying to explain the unexplainable. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, this, this happens all the time. Um, with with human beings, we're we're just mysterious. Human beings are mysterious. Right. Sometimes their motives are, are very mysterious. Like um, people discuss on infinitum the the motives of Iago in in Shakespeare's Othello. I mean, like why did Iago do what he did? He he seems to be the most wicked character in all of Shakespeare because we can't find his motive. It, it just seems like he's just doing it out of pure wickedness. Um, so it, it's similar things going on here. We just don't know exactly what what was driving Judas. Uh, but I think the, the bottom line is that he had become sufficiently immoral 
to where he was easily influenced by the devil and the devil was driving him to betray our Lord. And, and that's, that's ultimately the main cause for what, what had happened. He was an immoral man. He was a sinful man. And this opened him up to the influence of the devil. And um, this led him to the disastrous steps that he took. Wow, that's that's very interesting. It is uh, to me, it's almost like a cautionary tale. When 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 we've been talking about this father, again, someone who's so close to our Lord, who's there, who just has literally the, this the showering of graces that must have been there just by being in our Lord's presence, and yet the the devil was still able to to tempt him, to influence him, and to you know enter into his heart in a sense. It's um, isn't there the 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 verse from from Saint Peter where he says, "Be be sober and watchful." Uh, the the devil is like a roaring mm-hmm. lion. I'm I'm butchering that. I'm sure, but uh, you know, if mm-hmm. if no, that happened, if, if that happened with Judas, uh, it could happen with us. And it's uh, it's a cautionary tale for us, I think. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, we just can't imagine what it what it would have been like to to live with our Lord on on a day to day basis, just just walking with Him, being with Him, witnessing all those miracles. Um, as you say, Judas was just overwhelmed with all of these special favors. Um, and, and we are as well. I mean, when, when we think about um, the, the fact that we, we live in the New Testament, we, we have the Catholic Church, we, we have the sacraments, we, we have access to our Lord in, in the Blessed Sacrament. It is, it is the same Jesus Christ who is present in the, in the Blessed Sacrament. And yet we ourselves feel very strongly this, this pull from the world, this pull, this temptation to betray our Lord on a regular basis. So we can definitely um, sort of understand the, what, what Judas was, was facing, even though um, it, it seems like he was just absolutely overwhelmed with incredible graces. Yeah, well said. Well, Father, that's uh, getting to a bit of our time limit. Uh, I did have one other question queued up for this week. Maybe we can save it for next time. It's uh, one of our questioners had a had a concern about missing Mass on Holy Day because of work obligations. So uh, maybe we can dive into that a little bit next time. Sounds good, Andrew. Be All happy right. to do so. All right. Very good. Well, thanks, Father. As always, looking forward to the next time and uh, have a wonderful and restful weekend. Thank you, Andrew. God bless. You too. Thank you for listening to the SSPX podcast on your favorite podcast app or program. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other of your favorite programs. Please subscribe and leave a rating, especially if you're listening on iTunes. That helps us get the word out. And sharing the podcast with your friends and your family really is the only way for people to find it unless they type in SSPX in a search box. So please feel free to share. Even if you aren't able to donate, that's a great way for you to help grow this apostolate. This was our last conversation with Father Paul Robinson as a seminary professor in Goldburn, Australia. He has been transferred to Denver, Colorado. He is now the prior of St. Isidore's Chapel in Denver. We hope to continue our conversations with him and with more priests as they settle into their new assignments during this fall of 2019. Thank you again for listening and your support. Don't forget to send in your questions to sspxpodcast.com or by just messaging it to us on our Facebook page. Until next time, God bless you.